Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler star in They Came Together, a comedy about hate at first sight, available on demand now while it's in theaters. Life Itself, a documentary recounting the inspiring and entertaining life of world-renowned film critic Roger Ebert, is also available on demand now while it's in theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And this week on the show, we've peeled off our human skin to reveal our terrifying true alien selves. Not that you'll be able to see any of that, so you'll have to take our word for it as we review Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Inspired by Under the Skin, we were going to talk about other films that combine horror with the erotic, but then we learned that sometimes two people just have very different opinions about what's scary and what's sexy. And Matt, I'm just never going to agree with you about Hocus Pocus being an erotic horror classic. So instead, we're going to talk about other movies featuring memorable aliens that are available to stream or rent right now. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Our first pick is the erotic horror classic Hocus Pocus. No, okay, never (laughs) mind. Our first pick is one of my favorite films of 2014. It's a really great documentary. It's called Jodorowsky's Dune. Directed by Frank Pavich and available on VOD starting on July 8th. And through much of the 1970s, director Alejandro Jodorowsky, who made El Topo, which, Allison, did you know this is a little trivia here? That's the original Midnight movie is El Topo. That was the first film, basically, that was deliberately programmed as a midnight feature because it was so strange and I weird. did not know that. that. That is it. That is it. So for your, I'm sure it's a trivial pursuit know. question and now you're all, you're all ready to answer it. Uh, but yeah, Jodorowsky made El Topo and he made The Holy Mountain and so at, at, at that time in the you know mid-1970s he was really like the premier cult director in the world and he was hired to adapt Dune, the, the classic cult sci-fi novel and obviously Jodorowsky's version never got made. The Dune film that we ultimately got in 1984 was directed by David Lynch, is widely regarded as a flop. I've actually never seen it. Oh, have I you? have. Yeah. yeah. Is it amazing? It is. It's, it's a really interesting study in 
in a failure of an adaptation. Mm-hmm. Like so many things happen over voiceover. So many things just kind of are incomprehensible. Well, I suppose that would be a good way to describe Jodorowsky's Dune as well. A, fa- a great failure of an adaptation, although in a different sort of way. The movie never got made. So this is a unique documentary, a unique making of. It's an almost making of, you could say, in that it it follows the the story of the movie that Jodorowsky wanted to make but never did, which had kind of an all-star cast of of creators, including H.R. Uh, Giger, the, the guy who designed Alien, ultimately, and Dan O'Bannon, who was the writer of Alien. The score was going to be by Tangerine Dream, who did the soundtracks to Thief and Risky Business and a lot of other great movies. And Jodorowsky himself is the main interviewee, and he describes in the film his incredibly ambitious and kind of crazy vision for the movie which had very little to do with the novel dune i mean it was almost not at all based on the novel and it was that was really just the platform for him to make this crazy movie and what happens in the film is as you see this giant book that was eventually made for the people who were involved in the creation of it which was like a compilation of all the storyboards and concept art all this stuff and the director, Frank Pavich, in, in Jodorowsky's Dune, in the documentary, takes that stuff and he animates it. And he gives you, like, kind of a taste of what the movie would have looked like. I think there's this cliche phrase about movies being ahead of their time. I think that Jodorowsky's Dune might have been the most literally ahead of its time movie ever. Je crois que c'est jamais dans l'histoire du cinéma, un film aurait été aussi avancé pour ne pas devenir un film. Ou pour devenir un autre film, puisqu'il y a eu un film mais qui n'a rien à voir avec ces deux ans et demi de travail. If Alejandro's Dune could have been made, it would have been bigger than 2001. It was built up to be the greatest achievement in science fiction and it just evaporated into a billion small black pieces of space. I saw Jodorowsky's Dune at Fantastic Fest last fall. It was my favorite movie that I saw there. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. I'm just a sucker in general for making of documentaries. And this one is so great and so unusual because it's the making of a movie that was never made. But the movie, the documentary, actually gives you a taste of it through that animation. And I I love the way that it does that. And also, I loved just listening to Jodorowsky, who is this incredible storyteller, has all these great behind-the-scenes details and has this wonderful kind of energy about him even though this movie didn't get made even though he you know at the time that he was doing this documentary he hadn't made a a feature in a long time he's now since made one but just the excitement and the enthusiasm is so infectious and the movie argues that uh, that Jodorowsky's version of Doom is like the most influential sci-fi movie that was never made because it sort of helped spawn and inspire Alien and maybe it helped inspire in some ways Star Wars. I don't know that it makes that argument completely convincing, but I still really loved the movie and I loved I just liked, you know, Jodorowsky talks about in the documentary about how he had wanted to like make Dune in this way that would like expand people's consciousnesses and convince them of all these possibilities about life and art. And I think the best thing you could say about Jodorowsky's Dune the documentary is that it kind of did that you know, it kind of did that for me. It really kind of expanded my mind in a, in a wonderful way. So it's called Jodorowsky's Dune. It's a really great documentary. It's going to be available on VOD starting on July 8th. Uh, my other two picks are two other big 2014 titles that are now on VOD that I haven't seen yet, and I'm looking forward to catching up with both of these. The first uh, is available on July 8th as well, is The Raid 2, 
directed by Gareth Evans and is the sequel to the martial arts extravaganza from Indonesia. Once again, it stars Iko Uwais, the butt-kicking cop Rama from the first film, where that movie, though, was very contained. It was all set inside this high-rise apartment that was controlled by a drug lord, and Rama and the other cops are kind of working their way up this building to try to get to the top. The Raid 2 is, uh, at least from what I've read, and I haven't, again, I haven't seen the movie yet, is much more sprawling. It's like this huge crime story in Jakarta, and it's two and a half hours long, and it's supposedly insanely violent, way more violent, way more bloody than the original film. And I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it. Have you seen it? Allison? I haven't, and I'm so looking forward to seeing. Yeah, it. Yeah, this might be one we might need to do at some point down the line as a listener's choice option. Maybe we could do that. Some maybe not not next episode, but maybe in an episode or two we should put that because I think we're both really looking forward to seeing that. That's the raid two. And finally, uh, a movie that I've heard a lot of good things about. One of the biggest art house hits of the first half of the year. And another movie I haven't seen and looking to catch up with, it's called The Lunchbox. It's directed by Ritesh Batra, and that's available now on VOD. And that's a film about a neglected uh, housewife in India played by Nimrat Kaur, who's trying to win back her disinterested husband through food. She makes him these incredible lunches in the hopes of, of you know, getting him to kind of be more interested and more attentive to her. But her meal that she makes for him accidentally winds up in the hands of another man, this lonely office worker played by Irfan Khan, and they start sort of writing letters back and forth through these lunchbox meals, through these meals, and they begin this friendship uh, through these letters. And I've heard a lot of really good things about it. I, you know, as a crowd-pleasing kind of art house film, it was very well-reviewed. It has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. So this is one I'm really looking forward to catching up with. Wouldn't shock me if it might wind up on some top 10 lists at the end of the year, although it is a early part of 2014 release. If people remember, it, it, it definitely could it could wind up in that category, in that rarefied air of, of best movies. But So another one to potentially check out. That's The Lunchbox, available now on VOD. decided to go with aliens as our our broad theme this time around. Matt, do you have any general thoughts on movies about aliens? Um, I'm not sure I have general thoughts, but I did personally, I don't know about you, I tried to winnow it down a little bit to match Under the Skin, which is about, you know, I guess uh, technically Star Wars is a movie about aliens, right? Or Star Trek or things like that. But those are movies that are set in outer space. And what I tried to do is, like Under the Skin, I picked like movies that are aliens- on Earth, or alien invasions, or movies about aliens kind of hiding among us. That was what I did with my two picks. Yeah, I did the same thing. I also tried to skew more indie with these. Mm -hmm. These are two films that, uh, the two films that I picked are, are films that don't necessarily look small, but are like, for their relative scales, they were lower budget. Okay. So. I, I picked a little bit bigger, but I also wanted to mention, because there were the, two of the movies that came to mind first for me when I thought about you know, Aliens Among Us, Aliens on Earth movies 
we've already recommended on previous episodes. So I'm just going to give them a shout out and I'm going to give people the episode numbers if they want to go back and find them on iTunes or on filmspottingsvu.com. That's The Thing, the John Carpenter version of The Thing, which is a classic. We talked about that on episode number 41 of SVU. That was our episode about body horror movies and it certainly is that as well. And we've also previously talked about They Live, another... (laughs) John Carpenter likes movies about aliens among us, I guess. But that was all the way back on Film Spotting SVU number eight. That was an episode about dystopias. Were we ever so young? Yes, we were. We were beautiful and didn't have wrinkles, <laughs> and I had two different laptops, and uh, oh. it was it was a it was a glorious time. Yes, but uh, yeah, so you can hear us talk about they live back on Film Spotting SVU number eight. So we've got four additional movies about aliens uh, on Earth, aliens hiding among us, whatever, however you want to put it. And I guess we'll get to the maybe the the uh, general ideas as we get to our picks. Do you want to start? Do you want to go first? Sure, I'll start. Uh, my first pick is available to stream on Netflix right now, and it is Monsters. This is a 2010 indie sci-fi film that is the directorial debut of Gareth Edwards, not to be confused with Gareth, Gareth Evans, who directed The Raid. Um, Edwards went from this movie, which reportedly cost less than half a million dollars to make, possibly much less than half a million dollars to make, onto Godzilla, which cost quite a bit more than half a million dollars to make. It was quite a leap. And made quite a bit more than <laughs> yeah. half a million dollars. It was quite a step up. Um, what's interesting about Monsters is how consistent it feels with what at least I found to be the strengths and the weaknesses in Godzilla. Monsters is set in a near future in which a NASA space probe has crashed near the Mexico-U.S. border and it was contaminated with alien life, which has taken over the region. And the U.S. has responded by kind of building a wall to seal off the area, at least from the north, and by continually bombing the area to try and take out these monsters. Um, and the film stars Scoop McNary as a photojournalist working in the area who's trying to take photos of one of the live monsters. Many of them, they haven't been spotted that much. Um, and then he ends up getting charged with getting his boss's daughter, played by McNary's now wife, Whitney Abel, back to the U.S. I don't think it ever really explains what she's doing down in the area, but whatever. So what are you going to do tomorrow? I'm going to go home to my fiancé, get married, and live happily ever after. You're going to have a lot more fun tomorrow than I'm having. <laughs> when are you guys getting married? I don't know. We haven't set a date. Yeah. We're celebrating here. Cheers. Cheers. You know, despite having strong actors, I like Scoot McNary in particular a lot, and I've been happy to see him in more and more film and TV series lately. Um, Edward's strengths as a director really aren't with characters, and I think you see that in Godzilla as well, in which the characters are basically there to bring the movie back towards, conveniently back towards Godzilla. Um, but Monsters is gorgeously shot and uses the locations around, it's shot in around Mexico and Central America really well to create, I think, a portrait of a type of invasion that's very different from the typical imagery we expect in that uh, it, it combines 
sprites with a sense of wonder. In fact, I would say it has more in common in feel with like Jurassic Park than it does any typical alien movie. Uh, It is really about, uh, you know, having this awe as well as being terrified of these aliens, which kind of look like squid-like things, but are giants. Uh, Edwards worked in visual effects for years before becoming a director, and he did all of the ones in the movie himself. And he, and I think you see this in Godzilla as well, knows that it's often what you don't get to see that's most impressive. And so he's very sparing with these special effects. They look all the better for it, um, especially given the low budget. Uh, You know, uh, this movie, I think, has been accused of having a heavy-handed political message, and certainly every once in a while when someone says, I I think one character at one point says something like, it's like we're imprisoning ourselves about the wall at the border. But frankly, given like recent uh, U.S. policy towards, in terms of the bombing and the the indiscriminate bombing and the wall actually don't look entirely out there. They seem uh, not off point. So uh, it, it, it's, I think, a, a really, given its scale, it's a very impressive first film. Uh, and I think that it was the kind of film that won Edwards a gigantic franchise, not just in the scale of its character um, in Godzilla. So uh, certainly, certainly together enough for that. And uh, I, I think that it's pretty easy to, or not, it, it, it there's a lot more tendency for movies, especially small scale movies to create, to have aliens be this menacing thing to have them be something that is kind of majestic as well is, is a little more difficult. And I kind of like that about this. So that is monsters. It is currently streaming on Netflix. Okay. My first pick is a a little bit older. It's from 1956. You can stream it now on Netflix or Amazon Prime. You can also rent it on iTunes and Google Play and YouTube and Vudu. And it's the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, directed by Don Siegel, the sci-fi classic about pod people from outer space systematically replacing humanity. And there's actually quite a few good versions of this story. I'm recommending the original one in this case mostly because it just became available on Netflix in the last couple of weeks. So it's, you know, it's a good time to, to check it out. The film is based on a novel by Jack Finney. It's about a small-town California doctor, played by Kevin McCarthy, who returns home. Uh, He's on a business trip, and his office is flooded with patients, so he comes back early. All the patients are saying that their relatives, their loved ones, are not who they claim to be. But by the time he gets back home to see them, all of the appointments, or most of the appointments, have been canceled. And most of the people have recanted their claims. Now everyone says, no, I was wrong. Everyone is who they say they are. I was just being crazy, never mind, ignore me. Uh, but McCarthy, which is a it's a fortuitous casting choice, if for no other reason that his name is McCarthy, and the film bears certain strong resemblances to the witch hunts and paranoia of the communist Red Scare that was engineered by Senator Joseph McCarthy in the years right before the film's release. Uh, the character, played by McCarthy, keeps seeing these strange occurrences around town, and eventually he finds some evidence of what's really going on, which are these giant alien pods which are replicating people in every single way except in their emotions. They sort of drain people of their ability to feel love or excitement or hate or anything. Uh, I just rewatched the movie for the podcast, and it's still a great film. It holds up, and it's really, for its time, it's a very fast-paced movie as well. It's just 80 minutes long, 
And once it gets going, it just picks up steam and it never lets up. It's just this relentless chase as the body snatchers influence grows or we realize the extent of their influence. And McCarthy and the few remaining survivors in this small town are trying to stay out of their grasp. huge seed pods. This must be the way that putty in my closet was formed. Miles, where did they come from? I don't know. If they are seeds or seed pods, they must grow someplace on a plant, probably. And somebody or something wants this duplication to take place. But even though it's, it's so intense, it's very disturbing, it's very exciting on a visceral level, it's also just, it's just such a smart movie, and it has all these ideas it's working through. One of which you know, will be familiar to folks who just saw Edgar Wright's The World's End, which obviously bears a lot of similarities to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But the one that really it reminded me of uh, this time watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers is this idea of coming home. You know, in the, be- in, in the beginning of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, this version, the Don Siegel version, the character played by uh, Kevin McCarthy, he's been on a trip. He returns home and immediately it's like, you know, he, he, he recognizes his home, but it's changed. Something is different. And this feeling of not belonging or feeling like you don't belong in your hometown and how unsettling that idea is, even before you add in the pod people or the aliens or the robot duplicates from the world's end, how kind of powerful that idea is just on its own, I think, makes Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the world's end so great. Is the movie about the dangers of McCarthyism and about blind persecution, or is it about the dangers of communism and about conformity and repressed individuality? Uh, Looking at it this week, I feel like you could make either argument. You could read the movie either way, and I think that's part of what makes it work and what makes it hold up so well 50 years later and why it's been remade and, and repeated so successfully is it's not just about a social movement or something that an issue that was relevant to the 1950s. It's about these core fundamental fears that most people have that humanity has that the people around us might not be who they appear to be. Maybe Allison sitting here right now across from me. Maybe she's a pod person. She went, she went to the Nantucket film festival. She came back. Famously a home of pod people, right? There's so many pod people there, you know, (laughs) you look normal, but, I don't know. You seem more chipper than usual, which unsettles me and disturbs me. Uh, And that idea that the people around us might be, you know, they might not be who they appear to be. Or just even more fundamental than that. These ideas about trust, about paranoia, about the breakdown of society. You know, that, that those ideas never go out of fashion, and that's why Invasion of the Body Snatchers has not gone out of fashion. So it's a great film. If you haven't seen it, take a look. The uh, 1970s version arguably even better yeah, by Philip Kaufman is, is a great film too with Donald Sutherland and Leonard Nimoy also worth checking out but in this case I'm recommending the original which is also great directed by Don Siegel streaming on Netflix and Amazon all right well my what's your next pick pod person yes well funny you should bring Podison. this is a Podison. this is also uh, my next pick is also a film about uh, about aliens invading people's bodies and right. people you know not being uh, what you want them, what you think, or the people you think they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, only in this case, you know, sometimes you have your aliens as all of these possible metaphors that paradoxically bring about a better understanding of what it's like to be human. 
Sometimes you want an alien that just enjoys stealing luxury cars, robbing banks, and blasting rock and roll. Which brings me to 1987's The Hidden, which mm. is currently available for rent on Amazon, Google Play, iTunes, Voodoo, and YouTube. A fantastically 80s sci-fi buddy cop film directed by Jack Shoulder. Otherwise known for such franchise work as A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and Wishmaster 2, Evil Never Dies. Uh, this film stars Michael Norrie, who you'll remember is the love interest on and fl Flashdance, as Thomas Beck, an LAPD detective who's paired with a mysterious FBI agent named Lloyd Gallagher, played by Kyle MacLachlan at his like most odd, and they are tracking down what appears to be a strange gang of violent criminals with no apparent connection to one another, that is actually just one alien entity that's able to take over someone's body. And uh, this film is actually a really enjoyably fun, like it's just a fun combination of 80s buddy copisms with this super, this kind of, this sci-fi storyline in which the alien uh, emerges out of people's mouths, um, like this kind of slug-like thing, and then enters someone else's body. I feel like it's a variation on this idea that's come up in Star Trek in different <clears throat> in different sci-fi franchises before, but it's no less horrifying for seeing it in this context. But what's, uh, what's maybe the best part of this is the way that the alien one moves from like, moves into increasingly improbable hosts, which I won't spoil for you. Um, but also that uh, the alien just loves basically raising hell. It's having a great time on earth. Uh, he maybe has the most fun in the body of a character who's played by the actor William Boyette, the second body he inhabits, who at one point uh, takes a boombox he has stolen into a restaurant to eat. And so that starts, the, the camera just finds like all of these families and everyone's staring at this businessman sitting by himself, like globbing food into his mouth with a boombox sitting on the table. And uh, and then sees a car he really wants, like a Ferrari pass by and just walks out of the restaurant and walks after it. And this is such an 80s movie that before he even manages to go into the dealership to menace the people who uh, the guy who's trying to sell it. We see that guy with the with the um, the, the client he's trying to sell to doing lines of coke in the office. So that's about as 80s as you can get. <laughs> I want this car. Jonathan Miller would never do anything to break the law. I need the keys. Thank you. Bye. He is a very fine, very honest gentleman. Something strange is happening to some ordinary people. Yeah, that's Jack. Real nice man. What do you do, rob a bank? He's a law-abiding taxpayer, minding his own business. Killed 12 people, wounded 23 more, stole six cars, most of them Ferraris. If anybody deserves to go that way, sure in the hell's him. And it's also, uh, this was technically an indie. It was from New Line. It was made for like $5 million or something, which uh, on the scale of things was not that much for a, a kind of 80s movie of this scale. And uh, maybe because of that, manages to, ha manages to have a particularly good ending, I think, uh, and a kind of interestingly bittersweet one 
given how much of this is just like an action uh, an action film. So that is The Hidden. It is currently available on Amazon, Google Play, iTunes, Voodoo, and YouTube. And I'm sure on a cable channel like TBS <laughs> or something, uh, if you catch it at the right time. All right. Another good pick, a strong one. And, and just the, what I would expect from a pod person to pick as well, mm-hmm. Allison. So... Not surprised. Just playing into your expectations. That's right. All right. Well, and I like how we've gone from sort of more high-minded, intellectual alien films just right into the into the gutter with pulp and and silly stuff because that's just where mine goes as well. And I think the same year as well, 1987, with uh, Predator, directed Mm. by John McTiernan and uh, rentable currently on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. And this movie is on my mind because just a couple of weeks ago they announced that Shane Black who made Iron Man 3 and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and who wrote Lethal Weapon and a lot of iconic buddy cop movies from the 80s has actually been hired to reboot, or he said he's kind of making more of a sequel to Predator. At first they said there was an announcement that he was actually like rebooting it and now and then he kind of... Wait, what happened to the Adrian Brody? Was that a reboot? That was technically a sequel. That was okay. Predators you're referring yeah. to, which was directed by Nimrod Antal and yes. produced by Robert Rodriguez. That was sort of a reboot. That was also a, a sequel, you know, right. in, in that it didn't have any of the original characters, it, and, but it had the Predators, the alien, that famous so we're, iconic we're alien. we're skipping that chronology. And well, it's not really clear yet. You know, I guess maybe this could be the exact same thing, where it's sort of a reboot that doesn't involve any of the previous movies. You know, right. we'll, we'll have to wait I and see. I guess if you don't touch any chronology of the past movies, does it matter, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And in a movie like Predator, where... Most of the human characters wind up dead by the end of it. Right. There's not a lot to really sequelize or continue through on anyway, because you know even the actually even the predators often wind up dead. So you just follow a different alien that just looks the exactly. same. Exactly. Yeah. And really, I mean, the survivor at the end of this original Predator. Do you think he was going to go around telling a lot of people? Not a talking. You guy. gotta believe it. It's bad. <laughs> I would have believed him if he, if he said it to me, have. but you're right. It was probably a far-fetched story. But anyway, the original Predator from 1987, directed by John McTiernan, and it still holds up. I just watched it again recently for the five millionth time. And in many ways, it's the opposite of the Body Snatchers terror or the, the horror there. Because, you know, in, in Body Snatchers, it is about the the scare the scariness of the everyday the horror of the everyday these aliens in small town america they look exactly like us and the heroes are regular people you know they're doctors they're just average suburban americans who are thrust into this crazy situation and predators the alien can hide in plain sight in a way he's got this cool cloaking device he can turn invisible um, but once he loses that you know this guy is going to stick out like a sore thumb he He's kind of a cross between a snake and like a Jamaican reggae star. He's got this yeah, lizard got skin and he's got these crazy dreadlocks, this horrifying mandible jaw. He's a, just a great, you know, movie creation. He, he's incredibly designed, um, but he's also very striking. He's not going to he's not going to fade into the background without his cloaking device. And also the guys who are fighting him in this case are not average Joes. They're the, you know, like the stereotypical, like best of the best, this elite special forces unit that is sent into the jungles of Central America on this rescue mission. They inadvertently cross paths while they're there with this hunter from outer space. And the the crew of uh, soldiers includes Shane Black, as we mentioned, Bill Duke, Jesse the Body Ventura, uh, Carl Weathers, and, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dutch, the leader. Such a cast. Yes, uh, one of the great casts. And and it's actually, Schwarzenegger, though, is well cast in the movie. And, and him being in it is what makes Predator so scary. And this movie terrified me as a kid. And I think it's still a very, dis- like, it's a scary movie. It holds up. 
because it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers and all these guys is that, you know, in in a typical Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, especially from that period, from the early to mid-1980s, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays the quote-unquote predator guy. He's the ultimate hunter. He's the ultimate killer. He's the guy who can't be stopped. You know, in Commando, he kills an entire island of bad guys <laughs> single-handedly, and that's not any—like, literally 150 guys against Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie is considered an unfair fight for Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, and so here you put him against this one creature who starts picking off his men one by one. And and suddenly you have this idea like the guy who can't be killed, the guy who can't be stopped is being stopped and all his buddies are being killed by this creature. It just instantly becomes this really terrifying situation. It's like if Arnold Schwarzenegger can't stop this predator, Earth is presumably doomed, you know, and it it actually makes it kind of a, a chilling, spooky premise. And some of the effects, okay, you know, like there's probably a reason to have a new Predator in that sense. You know, the cloaking device stuff and his like, I guess he, we have a lot of scenes from the Predator's POV, which is sort of like his heat vision, but it, it doesn't quite work. And I guess some of that probably looks pretty dated. But overall, I think the movie holds up really well. It's it's a really entertaining, really kind of spooky horror action movie. And it's one that, even though it, I did scare the, the heebie-jeebies out of me as a kid, is one I, I like to return to every once in a while. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! <laughs> Another one that's probably on TBS and other cable channels with great frequency but if you don't have cable you can also rent it on amazon itunes google play and Voodoo. no girlfriend really oh i don't have a girlfriend at all very charming it's better yeah sorted handsome face all right yeah. thanks a lot cheers think i'm pretty Well, that brings us to our listener's choice review in this episode. The three listener's choice poll picks we gave you in this last round were Ishtar, Under the Skin, and The Muppet Movie. And despite decent showings by the two older choices, Under the Skin pretty easily walked away with the top slot. The movie, which is the third from director Jonathan Glazer, whose past work includes Sexy Beast and Birth, is based on a more satirical novel about an alien who's working for a wealthy corporation to harvest human meat, which is a delicacy on their home worlds. It kind of pokes fun of factory farming and about ideas of kind of uh, species superiority. But in loosely adapting the book to film, Glazer and his co-writer Walter Campbell have created something far more elliptical and mysterious, uh, stripping away many of the explanations and the satire, even though the basic idea remains the same. Scarlett Johansson plays an alien who drives around Scotland in a van trying to lure unsuspecting men, some played by non-professionals filmed with hidden cameras, uh, home with her. And when one of the victims agrees to come back with her, she basically lures him into black goo where his insides are sucked out and harvested. She works with another alien played by motorcycle racer Jeremy McWilliams who does cleanup after her and she eventually and almost imperceptibly starts to become curious about the experience of being human. 
Uh, now, this movie does something unusual, I think, even in the realm of sci-fi art films, in that it attempts to portray exclusively, really, the world from an alien point of view, one that is genuinely outsider, that is not human. So, Matt, my first question for you is, do you feel that it effectively did that? And if so, what are some of the scenes that you think worked most worked well in that way? In in presenting an outsider's view of humanity? Or just a, like an experience that is just very not human. I don't, you know, it's, it's an interesting way of framing it. I almost feel like it does the opposite. It shows a, not an outsider's view, but just like a, a observer's view of humanity. Not necessarily separated or alien, but just one of the things I found so fascinating about it was just the looking, the way that this character looks at her prey you know there are especially in the beginning of the movie there are these scenes she's cruising around in her murder van and uh we see out her windshield like what she sees and it's just people and there's this montage where she's basically like sizing up men and all different men you know and walking down the streets uh, obliviously and i'm pretty sure these are just random people these are not paid extras these are just people that jonathan glazer filmed out of this van walking through scotland and just this idea of this voyeuristic idea of looking at these people i found totally fascinating and the fact that you know the movie even though scarlett johansson is naked uh, a fair amount in it this this idea of like immediately turning the old this the idea of the male gaze and cinema being this this thing that where you know this device that's used to to leer at women for you know male directors making movies about looking at women and immediately this is about a, a female character who's looking at men and staring at them and objectify them that immediately jumped out to me and it, like sucked me into this movie just within the first five minutes where I was just completely fascinated and then when the guys start coming into the van and again a lot of these guys are not paid actors they are people they really it's almost like a horror movie borat you know these are real people who don't realize at 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 the time that they're filming it that they're in a movie and they're they're being seduced essentially by scarlett johansson and we get to kind of through hidden cameras watch this interaction and just watching human nature unfold i just found endlessly endlessly fascinating see i found that there is something really fascinating about that gaze being so uh, dispassionate about humanity, you Uh know, that she is sizing up people just as potential objects to be harvested, right? right? Like the first scene in which we see her, she's taking the clothes off of a corpse and we never really see how, where that corpse came from, but she kind of, she does this. And then the thing that distracts her is not the dead body. She has just basically, in some ways stripped an identity from Mm -hmm. right but the ant that's crawling on her right she picks up and looks like these two things are equal in her gaze right there is no particular tragedy or weight or importance to this corpse that she is just you Mm -hmm. know she's just taken from and i think that that one of the other early scenes in which uh, she's on the beach and there's a baby. Sure. Which is incredibly disturbing. Yes. Right? But that, I, I think that the movie does do something very impressive in portraying just how dispassionate her behavior is and the other alien's behavior is toward 
a screaming baby, mm-hmm. right? That like anyone with a, a an ounce of an humanity, ounce of humanity right. would have felt an urge to take care of, protect the baby, you know, right. beyond like her other actions in that scene. Mm-hmm. But that it's something that doesn't even merit a glance, yes. right? Like it's just this thing on the beach that's not useful. Yeah. And yet one of the things that I find so powerful about this movie and why I love it so much, and I've seen it already uh, several times, is that she is this character without humanity, as you say. And at that point in the movie, she's incredibly powerful. You know, she has this incredible control over these men. She can just lure them into her murder van and, you know, seduce them and get them into her goo pond and and do whatever she's doing with them. I don't know that the movie ever really fully makes it clear. I mean, the book apparently made clear in the book what it was doing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the movie is about the exact same thing. Right. And I mean, what we see is that someone gets reduced to like a skin sock basically right right it's yeah exactly in another incredibly disturbing scene Uh, but but this character at that point in the movie when she's seducing these men seems incredibly powerful you know or like the scene with the baby that you mentioned it's like that she i don't know that she has this kind of control over these people and yet later in the movie and i don't want to spoil too much for people who haven't seen it she has kind of an epiphany and begins to kind of awaken to a certain kind of humanity within herself. And that's the moment where she becomes a victim, where she becomes the prey, you know, instead of the predator and not in the dreadlocked uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger fighting kind. And that, 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 that idea that like being cold and being dispassionate makes you powerful, but b- having emotions or having pity of uh, feeling empathy like makes you weak I I would I don't know if I necessarily agree with that worldview, but but I found it incredibly powerful and and depressing and sad and beautiful in this movie. This idea that this character who's so terrifying in the beginning of it becomes almost a tragic figure by the end of the film is just one of the most interesting reversals. You know, the the the, the transformation, the way that we feel towards this character is so fascinating. The way it changes over the course of the film, so slowly and organically and naturally is really incredible and just an incredible accomplishment by Jonathan Glazer. Uh, agreed. And I think this movie is pretty tremendous. Uh, I do think it, it's it's not even necessarily her finding humanity in herself, but in attempting to participate in humanity. Right, right. That, right. like, to, 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 to try it on for size, right? Sure. There, in, well, there is a moment that definitely involves some amount of mercy, let's say. Yes. Where that involves her treatment towards one of her potential victims that displays at least some aspect of whatever you want to call it, mercy, empathy, humanity. Right. And that moment seems to be the moment where... Things change. Things change, yes. Um, uh, This movie does do something very interesting in in making use of Scarlett Johansson also, who is, you know, one of the, like the prime sex symbols of of our era right um in terms of actresses she is uh this is the movie that she's kind of uh gotten nude for right like yes. there are scenes of nudity and yet it also the movie de-eroticizes her in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and because i mean she's frightening right for one yes this but also that it is in a lot of ways it's directly about that idea of of gaze right that those scenes in which she she entraps the men when they come to the house for her are shot in this inky blackness right where it's just focused on the idea of this victim watching her right and like walking to his doom following her to his doom right just like gazing at her 
but she's also i mean in 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 there's a later scene in which she attempts to actually you know follow through let's say on the on this promise act. of sex yes. yeah and you learn that it's not maybe it doesn't work out right that the idea that she was even built exclu- like exclusively for to be gazed at mm-hmm. right she's not actually built to participate in right. anything beyond that yeah that's another interesting thing about the movie and something i've talked about a lot with people i did i have i host this film club in brooklyn at the Nighthawk Cinema, and this was the movie we we did a couple of months ago, and it was a really interesting and at times kind of heated discussion. And one of the things we talked about, and there was a lot of debate about, was like how much, how independent is this character? Like this, the Scarlett Johansson character, can she think for herself? Is she like when she's seducing those men in the beginning of the movie? Is she working of her own free will? Or is she, uh, you know, is she almost like a robot? You know, she's an alien, right? But is she also kind of like a robot in the sense that has she been programmed? You know, because one of the interesting things about this movie is that after that key moment in the film where she has that kind of epiphany, she almost never speaks for the rest of the film. She says maybe one, two words for the final act of this film. And it's almost as if her programming has been broken. And like once she's gone off script, she doesn't actually know how to interact with people. Like she only knows how to be this predator to, to seduce. She doesn't actually know how to have a meaningful conversation, you know? And then, so there's a question in the movie of in those later scenes, in that scene that involves this kind of attempt at um, quasi consensual sexuality. Although that's another question we talked about is like, how consensual can it be? Is she almost like a child in some ways? You know, like, it, does, is she being taken advantage of by that character that she kind of tries to consummate this relationship with or he tries to consummate with her? All of those questions are, I think, very ambiguous but fascinating because, you know, like you said, the novel laid out a lot of this stuff a lot more clearly. And I think that in not laying those out in the movie, you're left with this gray area where you're allowed to kind of imprint your own humanity or your own interpretation on it. and as you said like the movie kind of lets you become that character in some ways and i think that's one of the ways in which it does it is by letting you see the movie or see the character the way you want to yeah i find the idea of cons- like how consensual that later moment can be i mean that's an interesting one but also i feel like it's kind of it's putting humanity on her in a way that i don't think is necessarily uh is is necessarily merited right mm-hmm. like i mean this idea of 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 an, of the act being consensual is kind of one that we apply it like it's a human right scale right it, that like she not only does it can it really not be applied to maybe her situation but uh, and then she kind of learns herself right that it doesn't matter it's it's off the table right which is i i think the act the idea that she didn't know Right, that she feels this sense of kind of betrayal in like realizing this right. is also such an interesting thing. Well, 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 but again, that that the moment where I, maybe we should just get into a moment for a couple of minutes of spoiler spoileriness. But uh, the moment where that she has that sort of like almost like horror at herself, where, that's even ambiguous. It's not really clear in this moment whether uh, the the sexuality the exchange here didn't work out because it physically can't or because she's just kind of mortified by what she finds there. Oh, I I feel like I feel like it's implied that she physically can't. I mean, she takes I, a lamp and like looks right. I agree with you, but on the other hand, you know, we don't really know. I sure. mean, it's possible that there is an element of like, what the hell is this thing? And 
you know, I, this is what it's all about, right. <laughs> about you but know? I, I, I think that she, I feel like it's suggested she at least understands what, I mean, through that, like, she understands what sex, like, human sex is in, like, some sense, mm-hmm. right? But... I, Maybe I, I, it's not, you know, like I said, I think there is, there is, this is kind of what's fun about this movie yeah. also is beyond the, just sort of the craft and the intelligence and the interest that there are these, these interesting kind of layers to tease out. And I sort of agree exactly what you say, but there were some people who were quite adamant at our mm. little $5 film club who were like, no, this is, you know, and you know, that there was, they, there was, it got pretty heated. It got pretty intense actually. That's, that's huh. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like the idea of how much agency agency she has is, yeah, certainly one that goes throughout the, the movie. I mean, right. there's this idea that as soon as she goes off book, that her partners, like, and there's more than one, apparently, the mm-hmm. motorcycle riding yep. other aliens are off hunting her down, right? right? That, like, well, she is sort of in hiding mm-hmm. right when she well it's again it's, there's so many reversals in the movie in the beginning of the movie the motorcycle guy almost seems to work for her and by the end of the film it it seems the opposite it seems like almost like they're keeping her in track they're keeping yeah, her in, in check and she is you know that they're they're the ones in charge and she's just kind of a cog in a wheel that that's producing this meat or whatever it is that she's doing yeah absolutely uh the i the kind of it's something that I thought was very impressive about Scarlett Johansson's performance is that when she is seducing these men, try like trying to pick these men up, that she's also like Scarlett Johansson is uh, improving right with mm-hmm. a lot of them and just trying to. She was told like try and pick them up, right? Right. Basically, and so she's being warm and flirty, and she has a British accent, mm-hmm. and she's uh, you know asking for directions and doing all of these things to appear as normal and like kind of. Uh, and and warm as possible uh, and then when it doesn't work out it this that kind of drops off her face immediately yes. like there's this very clear like humanity is this act that she puts on mm-hmm. and then it falls away so immediately right uh that in a, that's like very haunting right it reminded me uh almost of like a, a watching a telemarketer who's been given a series of lines to get like ins ways to get into you to convince you to stay on the phone essentially. And it's like when something breaks down, you know, uh, like you could, like you said, you just see her kind of reset to zero, you know, like we, because like she might drive off the camera stays in the car and we can watch her face kind of glaze back over as she drops the, the appearance of, uh, you know, seduction or, or flirtatiousness and goes back to this kind of blank state. And it is a very chilling sight. And I, I agree. I think she is really incredible in this movie. And she's someone who I haven't always been a huge fan of. I think she's been good in some things and, fr- quite frankly, kind of terrible in other things. Yeah. I think she's been very good lately. I liked her a lot in Don Juan and her voice in her was fantastic. And I think this is maybe the best performance she's ever given. Yeah. An incredibly difficult performance on a lot of levels and is really incredible. And to me, it's like the kind of thing that I, I hope will be remembered end of year time for for awards consideration. It's a It's a movie that came out already a couple of months ago. But I, I really hope that it that it gets some attention because to me it's like it's a sign. This is like a signature performance. This is the movie that she's going to be one of the movies she's going to be remembered for yeah. forever. And it uh, and it turns around so many of these other roles in which yes. she is she is the like husky voiced beautiful girl, right? Right, like exactly. the object on screen. And she it, is playing it, with her own star text as the ultimate bombshell. So interestingly, as you said before, that you know that we all think of her in that way. That this you know sex symbol. 
and that she's using it in so many different ways in this movie is so fascinating to yeah, watch. I, and, you know, every time... And uh, the movie, like, goes out of its way to basically show these men, like, right? Like, walking towards her erect, like, and then just, like, kind of falling into... It becomes such this weird like almost animal right this animal seduction at this point like if they if, like they're almost trance like mm-hmm. in, in walking yes. towards her they can't Absol- take their eyes off absolutely of her, that they're just like in thrall and then she puts her clothes back on briskly and walks back out and it's it, it's very spooky mm-hmm. I, I think that it, there could be some kind of i mean there you could almost read that also as a as a whole you know as like a metaphor for what she does in every movie essentially you right. know is like the act of seduction to get you into the theater yes. to get your money and you then know, you put the, the robe on and, and then, then you're like, <laughs> and then once you get them in the theater and you yeah. have the money, then whoop, you yep. know, that's all this is. It's a, it's a, it's an act. It's a seduction. You know, it's a, it's luring you into her trap, so to speak. Uh, it's a very cynical way of looking at acting and movie making. But I do think that that is some, at, at least some small part of what the movie is about. And I think yeah. that if they had cast, you know, an, an, an unknown I don't think the movie would be as good. I think that part of what makes it work is the fact that it is Scarlett Johansson. It is this famous, beautiful, glamorous actress who is. And also the fact that, you know, that she's able to just by putting on this wig and putting on this accent that she's able to so seamlessly uh, uh, disappear that that these men who I'm sure have all seen the Avengers you know, and uh, they're all convinced. They don't realize that they're sitting in this van with Scarlett Johansson, this glamorous movie star. And it's, uh, in a way, the movie is almost an instructional video. How, like, this would work, right? She, th- like, this movie proves that aliens could walk among us, <laughs> and with a beautiful woman, they could lure men into a murder dungeon, right? I mean... There is an element of supernaturalness to that those scenes with like the black goo. Once they walk in. Once right? they walk in. Yes, I agree. There's some kind of mind power. There's some co- kind of as you said, they're in a trance of some kind. But those scenes in the van are just her convincing people. Like she drives up in a murder van <laughs> and convinces people to get in with her. You yeah. know what I mean? Like and it's so fa- and you know it doesn't need to be a van they always get in the seat next to her she could have just had a normal car <laughs> right the van i think is literally because like jonathan glazer right, and the crew the back. is in the yeah. back of the van but just the idea that like this like this would work and and, and it would work with with a, a glamorous movie star doing it i think is really again just reinforces of like how this could like aliens could actually do this so yeah, uh, definitely one of my very very favorite movies of the year so far. I don't know about you, but I think yeah, I think it's pretty fantastic. And before we we uh, before we finish with this, there has been some kind of talk about how how maybe thick uh, and and for some pe- for, for some audiences in America, the at least, difficult to understand the accents are. Do you think that was a problem for you, or did it? Or, no, not yeah. in the slightest. I think it's a deliberate choice, and I think it's a brilliant one because. We don't understand what a lot of these men are saying. They shot the film in Scotland. The guys who are, you know, not actors, random people they found off the street have these thick Scottish accents. And the idea is, it's again, like you said, it's putting you into the position of the Scarlett Johansson character because these people are speaking our language and we can't understand them. So it just gives you that sense of being a stranger in a strange land, of being put down in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this strange place and not being able to communicate, right? And it gives you that sense of befuddlement and isolation. 
And I, so I thought it was a deliberate, brilliant choice. I mean, I, y- yes, you cannot understand what a lot of these guys are saying, but that's sort of the point to me. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought it worked for it. In the same way, I think one of my favorite scenes is when she is watching TV at one point, and it's a comedy show that is just incomprehensible. <laughs> like, you hear, like, laughter, and there's something wacky happening on screen. Yeah. And it's, it's shot in a way so that you... And it's shot so you see her watching it and just kind of gazing at it, like, quizzically. Yes. No... It it looks just as opaque to us right. as it does to her, and, and it, yeah, it turns you know it turns like kind of a, this fami- familiar language to at least to English speaking viewers. It turns this familiar language into an alien language, you know, which I thought was such a brilliant, clever touch. Yeah, it's, for, for me that worked. I I guess I can understand people who are like, I want to know what they're saying, but to me, it's it's they're like, giving directions to the supermarket, right? Right. It's <laughs> not or, or to the highway, right? What they're saying is really and and I've seen it twice, and seeing it the second time, you can sort of start to follow it a little more. But again, I think feeling like if you like if you don't understand what they're saying, I think you're kind of getting what he's going after. Yeah. All right. Well, that is under the skin. We're both obviously huge fans. It is available on iTunes. That brings us to our Behind the Eight Ball section, where every episode we give you three picks that are new to streaming, two recommendations from you guys, our listeners, and one item chosen randomly from our Netflix My List. Matt, you're going first. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Three new picks. All right. First up, the movie that made Edward Norton a star, Primal Fear from 1996, directed by Gregory Hoblet. It's streaming now on Netflix. It's a legal thriller with Richard Gere as a glory-seeking defense attorney who takes on the case of Norton's character, an altar boy who murdered an archbishop. And Gere's character is, you know, the classic slimy defense attorney. He's just interested in money and glory and attention and stuff like that. But he actually starts to believe Norton's character is innocent, and so he has this kind of uh, change of heart. And that's what the movie is about. Nothing too fancy, but a rock solid mystery with some very good twists. And as I recall, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but one of the all time great twist endings, which I won't spoil, but a lot of, a lot of fun twists in this movie. I don't know if, you know, I was thinking about this. I don't know how well it would work now because we all know Edward Norton is a great actor. And I think part of what makes this movie so good is that Norton was such a surprise in this film. You know, when you when you watch this movie in 1996 and you didn't know who he was, it was almost like watching almost like an like you could believe he just was how this character is. And I think that was a big part of why that movie worked. Now that we know that he's a fa- fabulous actor and it, also someone who's who has picked a few parts like this true yes that like yeah yeah it may not work on that level quite as well but I, it's, it's just like a great kind of great is a little strong it's just a very good kind of like like date night or lazy sunday afternoon movie it's not super it's not this is you know it's it's fun it goes down smooth and easy and it is fun yeah it's primal fear on netflix Next up, another of my favorite movies of 2014 so far, Cheap Thrills, which is streaming now on Amazon Prime. This is about a couple of old friends, played by Pat Healy and Ethan Embry, who reconnect at a bar and then stumble into a series of dares with a wealthy couple, played by David Koechner and Sarah Paxton, who slowly pit the two men against each other. And in some ways, this movie kind of reminds me of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, just in the sense that it's a very well-paced thriller. You know, once the dares start, the movie just never lets up, and it just gets more and more intense until it kind of gets totally crazy. But at the same time, it's chunky. There's stuff in there. There's some ideas in there. And it's a resonant movie. You know, I think we all want to believe that we wouldn't do the things that these guys do to themselves and to each other in the film, 
but I think if we really like get right down to it, if we were in a desperate situation, if we needed money badly enough, uh, which is something I think we can all you know relate to at times, we might we might do something really horrifying, and I think that's what makes the movie work on a level beyond just the the, the visceral level. So that's cheap thrills that's streaming now on Amazon Prime, and finally on Hulu Plus, another deeply resonant film. The Human Centipede 2 full (laughs) sequence. This is the 2011 sequel to the original Human Centipede film, which, of course, is about a mad scientist, the old chestnut, the mad scientist who throws three people together butt to mouth. That old story we've heard a thousand times. In this sequel, which was a critical and commercial flop, uh, a fan of the original movie, a guy in the movie who has watched the first movie, decides to turn it into a reality, even though he has zero background in medicine. And the movie ups the gore factor of the original film significantly. But what I liked about this movie, and again, I was in the extreme minority here. People hated this movie. But what I found kind of interesting about it is that I I saw it as like this commentary, this kind of very sly commentary on fanboys and fanboy culture and fandom, and that it's about this fan, this guy who seeks to kind of possess the object of his obsession and kind of destroy it too, which is this thing fans do is that they, they love something so much that they, they have to kind of tear it down and they love it to death essentially, which is sort of what this movie is about. And so again, it's incredibly disgusting and horrifying and, and grotesque in a way that borders on a, almost a parody, a self parody. It's so extreme. It's kind of funny at times, but it is very gruesome. This is not a film for children it is not a film for most adults either, really. <laughs> you have to be ready to buy the ticket and take the ride. But I think this is a movie that there was more to it than was given. it was given credit for in a lot of circles. So that's The Human Centipede 2, not for the faint of heart or stomach, available on Hulu+. Plus. All right, two listener recommendations. All right, our first one this time is from Cherry in Mableton, Georgia. She writes, my suggestion is Wilfred. It's an FX comedy based on a critically acclaimed Australian show. Seasons one through three are streaming now on Netflix. My husband only watched one episode and dismissed it as a stoner show, which is understandable because it does feature a suicidal stoner who has conversations with a man in a dog costume. On the face, it's a weird show, but it's worth the investment because given a deeper viewing, it's a very funny philosophical show about the virtues and vices of humanity and how they play out in our relationships, Elijah Wood plays Ryan. In my opinion, it's his best role. And co-creator Jason Gann plays the hilarious Wilfred. So that's Wilfred streaming on Netflix. I know we're both familiar with the Australian Wilfred, Allison. Have you seen the American version? I've I haven't. Seen some of it. Yeah. I like it. it. It does some very different things from the Australian version. It including does. Including the idea of like him being suicidal mm-hmm. and potentially mentally unwell. Mm. Um, it plays with that really nicely. All right. Well, that was uh, recommended by Cherry, the show Wilfred on Netflix. Thank you, Cherry. And next up, we have a recommendation from Leslie. Leslie recommends Witches of East End, which is rentable on Amazon. It's a guilty pleasure, Leslie writes, a soap opera with witches, but it has Julia Armand and Madchen Amick with a little bit of Virginia Madsen in it as well. So it can't be pure trash, right? <laughs> right? This is a question. Allison, have you seen Witches of I East End? I have not. I haven't either, but it's, I mean, a show with Julia Armand and Virginia Madsen, it's hard to imagine it is complete trash. I'm kind of surprised, given that description, 
even if it was trash, that my wife hasn't watched this one yet. I'm going to point this one out to her. This sounds like something she could definitely get into. <laughs> trash or no trash. And maybe trash, trashier the better for her. Uh, the Witches of East End. It sounds right up her alley. So that's Witches of East End, and you can rent that on Amazon. All right. One from your Netflix My List. You gave me number 27, which is Maniac, the remake of the classic 1980s grindhouse horror film. This one directed by Frank Calhoun and starring, very fortuitously, the star of Wilfred, Elijah Wood. Here's the description from Netflix. A mannequin store owner develops a lust for blood when he becomes obsessed with a young artist who turns to him for help with her latest exhibit. And I think the, the, the whole shtick here was that the whole movie was told from the killer's point of view, or most of the film was from the killer's point of view. I heard mixed things about this one. Some people actually liked the movie a lot, and then I heard other people saying it was absolutely horrible. So I guess that's why it's, it's on there, and I just haven't gotten around to seeing it, as I'm sort of uh, a little trepidatious about it. It's something I'm kind of curious about, but also a little worried that I, I might hate it. But uh, I, I am curious to see it. I have seen the original Maniac. I am kind of curious to see this one. So at some point I'll probably get around to it. That was that's Maniac, the remake of the Remaniac, I guess you could say, which is on uh, I guess it's streaming on Netflix. Allison, are you ready for your uh, m- your countdown? No. Okay, yes. Okay, here we go. Let's start with three new titles. All right, first up is a film called My America, which is new to Fandor. They released it on January or sorry, they released it on July 4th. Um, it's the new film from Hal Hartley, who is, you know, known for a lot of his 90s indies, especially uh, late 80s, early 90s, like Trust and Flirt and Henry Fool. And this one is not a traditional narrative. It was commissioned by the Baltimore, Maryland Theater Center Stage. Uh, they asked 50 playwrights to create monologues about the idea of what is America. And then Hartley chose 21 of these to be performed. uh, And then he filmed them and kind of sewed them together into this film. So it's not a a traditional film in that way, but it's certainly interesting in that it it involves pieces that are written by some great playwrights, including Neil LeBute, Danny Hawk, Marcus Gardley, and others. And it's always interesting to see projects that... Um, are premiered on a streaming site. And this is, I think, one of the first ones that, that, that Fandor has done like this. So if you have Fandor, definitely check that out. Uh, it is My America. Um, new to Netflix is a film I haven't seen yet, and I was very excited to see it pop up on Netflix just recently. Like Father, Like Son, which is the latest film from Hirokazu Koreeda, uh, a director I whose work I just like so much. Um, this premiered at Cannes last year, where DreamWorks picked up the remake rights and uh, intend to have Paul and Chris White's direct it. Uh, the film is about Ryota Nonomiya, who is a successful businessman who learns that his son, who he thought was uh, his son, was actually another child. His biological son was switched with another child at birth, after birth, um, and he is forced to decide whether he wants to basically keep the child or to choose his biological son instead. Um, so interesting premise there. And Koreeda has made some great complex films about family dynamics that I've really enjoyed. So looking forward to seeing that. That is new on Netflix. <clears throat> and 
new to Hulu is The Deep Blue Sea, not to be confused with the movie in which Samuel L. Jackson gets eaten by a shark. This is the one that is directed by Terrence Davies, 2011 film starring Rachel Weisz as Hester Collier, a uh, wife of a judge in 1950s England who has been having an affair with this dashing former World War II pilot played by Tom Hiddleston. And she is caught between her marriage that is stable and comfortable and passionless and this new relationship, which has basically brought her crashing down multiple kind of class lines. Uh, It's much more ardent, but also far less stable and emotionally sound. And the film features an amazing, uh, an amazing leading turn by Rachel Weisz and it skips through time uh, and kind of becomes this portrait of a woman who is caught between these two kind of these two imperfect relationships, but also who seems almost also caught up herself in the idea of torturing herself for love, the, of kind of, of martyring herself for love. So it's, it's a great film. It was on a lot of top 10 lists a few years ago, uh, and now it's free on Hulu. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, definitely do. The Deep Blue Sea. All right. How about two listener recommendations? First up, we have a listener recommendation from Mark from Seoul, South Korea, who writes, I thought I'd recommend both a streaming YouTube channel as well as a couple films from that collection. The Korean Film Archive has around 100 films covering Korean cinema from the 1950s up to the present. It's a great resource for anyone interested in Korean cinema's past and also includes a few more recent films from the beginning of the Korean new wave of the late 80s, early 90s, which is so successful internationally today. In particular, I would recommend the classic film Madame Freedom from 1955, which was an immensely popular adaptation of a serialized novel of the time. It's a fascinating look at the Korean society of the period, especially in terms of the attraction slash repulsion towards the West, as told through the form of a woman's melodrama. Makes a great comparison with Hollywood melodramas of the period, such as those by Max Ophels and Douglas Sirk. Second, the first film of the great Korean auteur Hong Sang-soo is available, The Day a Pig Fell in a Well from 1996. It is a four-part film following four main characters and how their lives intersect. It can be seen as an example of the network narrative movement of the 1990s, as well as a look at Korean society as it adjusts to the rapid changes it underwent in this period. Hong fans will also be interested in checking it out. And I certainly like Hong Sang-soo, so I will check that out. Thank you, Mark. And then we have another recommendation from Aaron from Canada. He also gave us his Twitter account, which is Aaron Bergstrom, A-R-E-N-B-E-R-G-S-T-R-O-M. He writes, just a quick recommendation, Journey to the West, Conquering the Demons by Stephen Chow which is now streaming on Netflix. It's a reworking of the traditional Chinese novel Journey to the West about a Buddhist monk trying to reach enlightenment by combating demons in the countryside. Of course, being a film by Chow, this is full of slapstick and tonal shifts. It's more than a little insane, but totally exhilarating. The kind of foreign gem that could use a good recommendation to get a much-deserved cult following. And I love Stephen Chow, so uh, this is already on my my list, and I'm looking forward to checking it out. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, and how about one random film from your my list? You gave me number 70, which is Cutie and the Boxer. Uh, This is a doc from last year. It was from first-time filmmaker Zachary Heinzerling about the 40-year marriage of artist Ushio Shinohara, who is famous for his boxing paintings where he would use boxing gloves 
dipped in paint or ink to basically punch the canvas and then uh, make paintings that way. And his wife, Noriko, who has uh, served as his assistant, essentially, for her overbearing husband for much of their marriage and then finally gets to have a show of her own. And it was nominated for an Oscar, got great reviews. It's just one I haven't gotten to see yet. And I've heard only good things. So I'm sure when I do get to see it, I will enjoy it. All right. Well, let's get to our listener's choice options for our next episode. I think we've got three intriguing possibilities here. Allison, I think you've got the first one. What is it? Well, it is uh, one that I think we've mentioned in an earlier section. They Came Together, which is available on iTunes. It is the latest film from David Wayne and finds him reteaming with his wet, hot American summer writer, co-writer and, um, you know, Stella member and the state member, Michael Showalter. And it is a romantic comedy parody starring Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler as two completely bland, insane New Yorkers who meet cute, hate each other, and then run through many other moments of uh, the usual beats of any romantic comedy. And you know, if you enjoyed Wet Hot American Summer, this definitely tries to capture some of that other that strange humor while also folding in a bit more genre parody. So that is available on iTunes. I have seen it. You have not yet. I haven't seen it, no, but I'm a huge Wet Hot American Summer fan. So it's something that's definitely on my, my list. Not my, not my my list, but on my list of things that I have to catch up with that I've missed in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so I would definitely be up for talking about that one for sure. All right, option number two is going to be 1953's From Here to Eternity, which is streaming now on Netflix. It's Fred Zimmerman's film about three World War II soldiers, played by Frank Sinatra, Montgomery Clifton, Burt Lancaster, in the weeks leading up to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. This movie has the, the famous image, really one of the most famous images in all of cinema history. Yeah. Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr kissing in the, in the water and on the as beach. As the waves crash As up. the waves yeah. crash over them. It's definitely one of the, you know, it's on every montage of classic Hollywood cinema. That one's in there. And... You know, this is a movie that was a huge hit and also a huge award winner. It's the Best Picture winner of 1953. It also won at the Oscars. It also won Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Supporting Actor for Frank Sinatra, and Best Supporting Actress for Donna Reed. And neither Allison and I have ever seen it. So it seems like an oversight that would be good to check off our list and it's something uh, we want to check out. So that's number two, option number two, From Here to Eternity, streaming now on Netflix. And finally, our last option is one that I've already talked about. It is Like Father, Like Son, the latest film from Hirokazu Kore-Eda. As I mentioned, I'm a huge fan of his and would love to be emotionally crushed by whatever mm. latest work he's come up with. Uh, Matt, are you a fan as I well? I am, yeah, absolutely. This is another one. It's a, a, Really, all three of these movies, it's like, this is just a great excuse to watch one of these movies yes, for basically. me. So I'm, I'm on board for all any of these choices. I, we really can't go wrong this time. Yes. And, you know, always always good to catch up with a movie before it t- gets turned into possible Hollywood schmaltz. So, <laughs> That's right. So so that there's that to, with the last option. Okay. So which of those three movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? It's up to you. Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, July 14th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on Tuesday, July 22nd. 
filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discussed on the show the film spotting svu remixed theme song is by vince vandal you can listen to more of his work at vincevandal.com and we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick and in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice poll and where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. For FilmSpottingSVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.